Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Benjamin Hardy. He's an organizational psychologist and best-selling author of Willpower Doesn't Work and Personality Isn't Permanent. His blogs have been read by over 100 million people and are featured on Forbes, Fortune, Big Think, and many others. He's a regular contributor to Inc. and Psychology Today. And from 2015 to 2018, he was the number one writer in the world on Medium.com. Benjamin Hardy, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be with you, Nick. So one of the peak moments in your life was when you decided to buy the Benjamin Hardy web domain. This is how you gave yourself permission to become a writer. Was this your point of no return experience? This is a big part of it for sure. Yeah, I think that that was when I, you know, my wife questioned me on that decision. She was asking me like, okay, if we're going to start spending like upwards of thousands of dollars on your writing thing, like, are you going to do this? And so to me, it was... It was very monumental because, you know, we, we didn't have an enormous amount of money at the time and it was a big investment and it was kind of me putting my stake in the ground and saying like, I'm serious about this. So yeah, I think it was, that was at least a crucial aspect of, of what would be many points, points of no return, but that was a big one for sure. Further solidifying my commitment to my goal. You had the vision and you had the agency. How did you choose the path to take from there? I started asking lots of questions. You know, once I kind of had the insight that I wanted to be a professional author, I needed to figure out how the heck to get there. So I, I, I initially actually started calling literary agents because at the time I didn't, I didn't know that I needed to grow an email list. And so I just figured if I find an agent, then maybe they can help me get a book deal. I knew, I knew, I knew enough that literary agents were a thing. I didn't really know exactly what they did, but I just figured I need to find an agent. So I started talking to probably... 15 or so agents. I just Googled and went to people's websites, hopped on the phone with them. A lot of them were offering me coaching programs. Um, a lot of them told me that, you know, I started getting consistent answers to my questions. I remember just being on the phone with all of them. They were all like, well, you need to start growing an email list. You know, you need to actually like start blogging and growing. And so I started getting that path developed. Then I started studying, well, how do you grow a blog? How do you grow an email list? I found people like Jeff Goins, Ryan Holiday, Seth Godin, Michael Hyatt. Like I just started quickly finding these resources where it's like, okay, so if I want to be a professional author, I've got to start blogging. I got to start growing the email lists. And then I started just studying it and ultimately bought an online course by John Morrow that taught me how to write viral headlines. And so I was very actively developing that path once I had my goal. So you started asking questions and I love this because I love your four quotes that will immediately shift your perspective article on medium because I love quotes but I don't think questions themselves are quoted enough. Are there crucial questions that come to mind that have helped you to get what you really want? I mean, I really love the quote that was brought to my attention by um, Tim Ferriss, which is the Peter Thiel quote, which is how do you achieve your 10 year plan in the next six months? Like, even though I don't know if I've ever actually done that um, as far as like actually accomplished a 10 year plan in six months, that type of thinking allows me to find better paths. It forces my, it forces me to question my current process and say, you know, if I was more committed to this or if I had only six months to do this, you know, would I do this? Or, you know, so that, that question really helps me. I don't know if I have, I mean, I, I do like the question, you know, how would my future self handle this? Or, 
or even um, like if, who do I want my future self to be? I mean, that's a really basic one, but yeah, I mean, I, I ask myself questions all the time and, and um, my goal for personalities and permanent was to ask hundreds of questions of the reader. You've said that writing a book or creating anything for that matter can change the way that you see the world. And you said it should change you in the process. Did you ever find yourself in the process of writing a book or article while simultaneously parting with the whole idea of it? I mean, does the personal transformation you experience in the writing process often result in you wanting to throw out everything you just wrote? I've never had that experience. Usually, and maybe it's because of sunk cost bias. Like maybe you're just so far and like mm. if you have a publisher, they've given you money. But I've definitely, I've def maybe not with a book, but probably with articles, definitely, where I've gone actually down the research hole and like found that my assumptions were the exact opposite. So I just, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I was wrong about that. Throw that away, you know, or, 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 or I was wrong about it. Sweet. I'll write about the new thing. So yeah, the process of going down the rabbit hole of learning about something and even creating and coming up with your own version of it definitely changes your view of it. I imagine most writers really expose their own weaknesses and holes through their writing. Definitely. I mean, I was asked about willpower doesn't work recently. And I would say that at this point, I probably agree with 80% of it. You know what I mean? Like, and probably my future self will agree with 80% of willpower doesn't work. I mean, with personalities and permanent. So I, you know, you, you see a lot of your own holes as a thinker, as an organizer, because you have to organize the content in a structural flow, mm -hmm. but also, you know, you, you, unless you're a, really active learner the product is a reflection of your weaknesses you know because if you're not a good storyteller then you're probably not going to lean too hard on stories so like with willpower doesn't work i didn't lean very much on stories because i wasn't very good at storytelling i'm still not that great at it but i really focused on that with personalized and permanent so so i think that the product itself exposes a lot of your weaknesses because it, it kind of shows what you leaned on and what you leaned away from in creating it what is that 20 percent of willpower doesn't work that you might disagree with now? I actually don't know if I could point to anything specific. I'm just thinking about it as a whole. Like um, I recently re-listened to a lot about it, but just, you know, I'm not the same exact person. So I don't really see it exactly the same way. Uh, I still like love the concept and I, and I get a lot of, a lot of insights from the angle but I see ideas as angles, not as like full on truths. So like willpower, obviously one angle of the ideas is that willpower of course works. Um, but that's not the angle I was going for. Like I was going for a radically different angle, which is also very true. Um, you know, if you're trying to overcome an addiction as one example, willpower is a pretty terrible way to go about it. You should probably change your environment and get a lot of social support and change your identity. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, I still get lots of good ideas from the angle and, you know, even from, as an entrepreneur, it makes a lot of sense that you'd want to remove decision fatigue by getting support from other people. So I'm learning a lot mm -hmm. about willpower doesn't work that I didn't know when I first wrote the book, but just, I think just as a whole, I probably agree with maybe closer to 90%, but I'm, I'm not fully, I don't see things exactly the same way. So I, I can't point to anything specific, but, um, yeah, just as a whole, I've distanced myself from some of that thinking. And I want to talk about some of the support that you got from Ryan Holiday. You hired him to help you get your book published. And you said you're glad you did because he held you to a certain standard. And now you hold yourself and your writing to a higher standard as a result. I'm curious how your process has changed to reflect this. Yeah, so with Ryan, this was back, 
in 2017 when I was really crushing it on Medium. And I actually, I think it was probably actually in 2018 that I really started actually helping Ryan on Medium. But he was just someone that was already very established in the traditionally published world, which is where I wanted to be. And so I just was, was learning from really good email subscribers and stuff like that through Medium. But he was still well, way beyond where I wanted to be as far as an author. And so, yeah, I just hired him. I spent literally $3,000 to get a couple hours of his time. But he, he was very generous. He ultimately helped me to write the book proposal for what became Willpower Doesn't Work. And he helped me get an agent, which then allowed me to get the book deal. But yeah, I think what, what really helped me with writing for Ryan, and even more recently, I, you know, I had Tucker Max edit Personalities and Permanent, and Tucker actually edited a book called Who Not How, which I did with Dan Sullivan that comes out in October. But writing for people that you respect and you respect their opinion, not just some random editor, but someone who you like, you really respect how they see things and how they think and how they write. It, just because of the audience, you speak differently. You know, it's mm-hmm. a different environment. That, you th- that you're throwing your ideas out on. So when I was working on my proposal with Ryan, I was like, okay, if Ryan's going to read and edit this and give me feedback on it, like it better be good. <laughs> you know? And so like, it just, it forced me to think things on a higher level. And then I got his feedback and I wanted to make it even better. And so uh, it was just a great context for learning. And, and it's just taught me that why wouldn't you want that more regularly? Like, why wouldn't you want that level of audience to give you feedback for your work so that you're progressively giving it your best shot? Something that Ryan Holiday said, for all the productivity and success advice I've read, shaped, and marketed for dozens of authors in the last decade, I've never really seen someone come out and say, find yourself a spouse who compliments and supports you and makes you better. What flaws and weaknesses has your wife highlighted for you? And how does she do this in a way that leads to growth and not a big fight? (laughs) First off, dude, I have to give you such props, dude. You are like the master researcher for your podcast, or at least you find so many cool jumping off points. Like this, this is one of the cooler interviews I've done in a long time because it's just obvious that you've done some cool research. And so I just want to first off, thank you. Like I love the jumping off points that you're going off of. They're so cool and relevant. Thanks, um, man. No, I mean, it's like, this is a freaking cool conversation. So thank you for what you've done. Uh, yeah. As far as my wife, I 100% believe that that's like one of the ultimate decisions because you know you frame yourself based on the person you you choose to be with my wife one of the reasons why i was super attracted to my wife was because and this may sound weird but maybe maybe not she was difficult to please um like she didn't she wasn't initially interested in me uh and it's not just that like i wanted what i couldn't have but like she just impressed me and i could see an amazing future self like i could see myself becoming someone better if I was with her and hopefully I could help her do the same as far as how she helps me. Um, I think it's mostly just, it's less about words, although she's, you know, she gives me lots of great counsel and we, we collaborate a lot. We hold it, you know, we're kind of on the same level mm-hmm. as far as like, I don't see myself above her or her above me. We're very much collaborators, but I think it's mostly just in general who she is and how she holds herself. Like she's just someone I respect She's someone who I, I don't want to let down. Um, she does from time to time will tell me like if, if I'm not, if I'm creating problems or if I'm clearly in a funk or if I just need to just grow out of something and, and we have good open conversations. So I think mostly it's just who she is. That's always constantly inspiring me, but 
you know, she will, she will tell me, you know, in a straightforward, but understanding and empathetic way. If there's, if there's things that I need to work on and there's things like when I feel like I need to tell her something, I'm, I'm very thoughtful about how I do it, you know, cause said the wrong way, a hundred percent, you're right. It could turn into a fight or it could be diminishing versus, you know, look, how do, how do we develop this together? That's so cool because I think it's rare when someone's so close to you that they have the ability to also be your sort of impartial spectator and tell you like it is without worrying about hurting your feelings. She does a good job of that. She's, she's more blunt than I am. She's, mm-hmm. she's definitely, she's more, you know, intense and to the point than I am for sure. So I want to talk about your new book, Personality Isn't Permanent. But first, I've never taken one, but I've heard you speak on the good and the bad of personality tests. Do you think they can be a good place to start maybe for the beginner mind? Yeah, maybe for the beginner mind. I like how you put that. I think that for the beginner mind, and I I think that's a really cool framing. I think, you know, people want little bits of benchmarks, maybe um, just to kind of give themselves some form of insight into their identity more than anything or, or how they go about situations. And so I think that maybe that can help. Like I took, like I mentioned in the book, uh, the test, the color code, which is the main one I took. And what that told me more than anything, it didn't tell me anything I didn't already know, but it, what it told me was that I was someone who really liked um, certain types of energy. Like I like peaceful energy, which I think a lot of people do, <laughs> but um, you know, it told me that I liked spending time on ideas, which at that point in time, I really did. Cause that was when I was fresh off, you know, serving a church mission and I was getting straight into psychology. And so like at that point in time, it was, you know, so yeah, I, I guess, I guess it could give some people some insights that if they're not deeply introspective already or have spent a lot of time journaling or meditating, I guess it could give you some insights that you might not have gotten otherwise. That church mission you just mentioned, that sort of taught you how to be flexible. Can you talk more on this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a crazy experience. Um, did it in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, by the way, not too far from you. Yeah. Even spent some time in Steubenville, Ohio, <laughs> uh, which is a crazy little town. Yeah. But um, it taught me to be flexible for a few different reasons. One is you're kind of living with someone you didn't choose to live with. And that person could be not a cool person to live with. And you kind of just have to be hyper flexible to like, just not getting upset and to to being empathetic and to learning how to be a good friend. Uh, Taught me a lot of things. I mean, I was going through like ghettos and I was going through all sorts of crazy places and learning to just like, understand people who had a different perspective than me had a different background had a different philosophy on life like I was exposed to so many things during that time and was reading lots of books as well and doing lots of journaling and I had great leaders who um you know committed me to better action and so I I was constantly outside my comfort zone you know if you're going around and doing community service or even going door to door and offering people insights into faith in God, you're going to get rejected a lot, you know, on the streets. And so I learned to be all right with that. I learned to, um, you know, be all right in really awkward situations Mm -hmm. um, and just learned how to just overall see things from different angles. And so that was, it was a great experience on learning, on failure, on rejection, on journaling, on, on goal setting. So it was, it was a cool experience for sure. When we wake up, Most of us fall into personality autopilot and continue 
we continue on like our past selves are set in stone and you're saying it's just more complex than this. I think that that's kind of the easy way to go. The easy way to go is to go on autopilot, which is basically subconscious. The easy way to go is just to revert back to the behaviors you did yesterday without any, without any real perspective on the consequences of those actions and what they're going to produce in the future. It's just kind of like, this is who I am, or this is where I am, or this is what's safe. This is what's comfortable. This is what's me. Um, without really thinking hard on like, all right, well, if that is you, then what's going to happen in the future? Like, is that what you actually want? Because your behavior creates outcomes and consequences. And so I think that it's natural and you kind of revert to, you know, our, our current situation and our current, our current, I guess you could say addictions, whether that be your cell phone or, you know, the type of eating you do or just the type of patterns you go through throughout the day. And so, yeah, I think it's, that's the easy thing to do. Um, but it's also frustrating because I think when you're in that state, you're not living fully intentionally. You're not living by design. You're not living fully by choice. And so over time, of course, that can wear you out. It also, I think, leads to frustration because you're not actually making advancements towards something meaningful. You and every new day are two strangers meeting for the first time and you have the ability to make a good impression. I love that. <laughs> I think that's a great, I, I'm a big believer and fan of starting fresh. And, and, I, and I believe that confidence, although you can write off of former confidence and write off former momentum, you need to essentially reestablish it at the beginning of every day. So it, it is a new, fresh choice. You know, like I'll give a brief and honest example. Today, I was on fire. Today was well-designed before it started. And I woke up with the right mindset and I went at it from the right angle. Whereas yesterday, yesterday, there was a few things that I set up, you know, weren't set up as well, but also I just didn't approach it the right way. So yesterday, you know, this is again, another reason why I like this conversation is because if, if you, if I, if I didn't look the same, looked at me yesterday versus looked at me today and energy, but also my output, my behavior, like it's two different people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, I'm striving for consistency, but yesterday I was not the same guy I was today. And I want to talk about taming our past or taming our past trauma and identity narratives. You write about not only the importance of reframing our past, but also using future goals to frame our present in order to get the most out of life. Can you talk more on this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We can first start by, I guess, framing the past. This This can be a hard pill for people to swallow, but it's important to realize that the past that you see is not actually the past, but it's what you see and that we all frame our past based on our perspective. And that perspective is usually developed, you know, through often, through often emotional experiences, usually like the reactive non, non really well-developed way of creating meaning is just basing it on the experience you felt. So like if something hurts or doesn't feel good, then it's not good. Like that's, that's a really basic meaning to give. Um, you know, if someone tells you you're not smart, that might hurt and you might then believe it. And so you gave the wrong meaning to the, not wrong, but you gave an unhealthy meaning to that experience, a meaning that, a meaning that ultimately limits you. Mm-hmm. And so reframing the past, which is something that we do instinctually anyways, and we also do it societally. So like, as an example, like, we're in the midst of COVID-19. We're in the midst of like social, intense social conversations throughout the U.S. And, you know, like with even like the Black Lives Matter movement, like through all of these conversations, 
we as a society or as a culture and culture is really just the personality of a group, hmm. but culture shifting, you know, we're now choosing to look at the past and maybe former experiences or former characters from a different lens. You always look at content from the perspective of a context. Hmm. And, and so I guess when it comes to like, just as an, you know, like the Colin Kaepernick thing, like, you know, this is a guy who was slightly vilified maybe two or three years ago by various people, but now he's turned into a hero, you know? And like, it's not necessarily Colin that changed or what he did that changed, but it's our view of him that changed. And so when, when it comes to our own past and maybe the experiences that we either regret or the experiences that we feel have limited us, we have the capacity and power to change the meaning of it. Um, and we need to and should do that because if you don't do that, then you didn't actually learn the lesson you're still viewing it from the same kind of narrow view of when you formed the perspective in the first place. Um, and so active meaning making is just about saying to yourself, what's the best way to view this? What's the most beneficial or empowering or more accurate way of viewing this? Or what's a more useful way of viewing this? What's a way of viewing this where I can get the most benefit from it so that I can move forward rather than that I'm limited because of it? Yeah, like maybe you can either look at the the emotion attached to it or the evidence attached to it. I love that. Yeah, I mean, that that is exactly correct. Yeah, so in psychology, we call that creating cognitive commitments. But people who look for the emotion don't often don't look for the evidence. They just want to justify the emotion, right? So if it didn't feel good, then you just assume that it wasn't good. Well, it's like, well... You know, in the book, I tell the story of my, my like great grandmother-in-law or whatnot, who, you know, she was, she was embarrassed because she was, she essentially failed an exam or whatnot. It wasn't really an exam, but she was in a private art class and it just didn't go well. And she was embarrassed and ashamed. And so the, the meaning that she gave to this experience, this private art class experience was that she's not good at drawing because it didn't feel good. She was embarrassed by what happened, but that actually isn't the facts. You know, like who's to say she's not good at drawing? Um, So I think questioning the facts or at least what we thought the facts were Um, and really what it's all about the what here's what's really interesting is, is that emotion can create meaning, but meaning also creates emotion. And so the meaning you give to an experience, if it was driven by an emotion, was probably a limiting meaning, but also it will create negative emotions in the future. Whereas if you have a negative emotional experience, you know, something bad happens that that sucks. When you give it a positive meaning, it changes your emotion towards that thing. You can then be grateful for it or you can be empathetic towards it. And so if you want to control your emotions rather than be controlled by them, then you need to be very thoughtful about the, the frame that you give it. You know, how can you view this in a positive way? You know, like, you know, if your parents get divorced or something tough, like, yeah, it sucks. But like, how can you how can you look at this in a different way where you can at least pull some positivity from it or at least use this to learn from it? Um, and so you got to be really thoughtful about how you frame things because that's ultimately going to be how you feel. And Dan Sullivan has the concept of all concepts on this. He calls it measure the gain, not the gap. Um, you know, it's like, how, what are all the gains that could come from this or have come from this that you're not paying attention to? And if you find the gains, which there always will be, even if it's just, that you learned something really intense that now you can use. If you focus on the gains versus the gap, then you're empowered and you have more agency. If you focus on the gap, then you've lost agency. If we face our pain or our inner thorn, as Michael Singer puts it, instead of working so hard to protect it, 
then we can grant ourselves permission to be free and have that spiritual growth. You got to just pull it out. And, and I think that pulling it out means facing it and facing it means you're, you're actively going to change it versus avoiding it, meaning you don't want to deal with it. But yeah, the thorn could be anything. The thorn could be a trauma. It could be a bad relationship. It could be a bad memory, but you face it. You journal about it. You tell people about it. Hmm. And ultimately you get help whether it be getting better information, whether it be emotional support, but you get the help you need to reframe it and to ultimately find peace with it and to choose to be grateful for it and to, you know, choose to have a positive lens on it. That's, that's how you move forward. Yeah. And I like how you said the trauma can be anything. It can be, like you say in the book, it could be math trauma or any subject trauma for that matter. Like you said, your relative who had the sort of art trauma. Totally. Yeah. Trauma is just any negative emotional experience that you've given meaning to that ultimately limits your future. So like trauma is associated with a loss of imagination and a loss of hope. And you need both imagination and hope to conceptualize a better future and to believe that that future is possible. And so for like my, my great grandma, like she had an experience that she gave meaning to that ultimately crushed her imagination and hope towards becoming a good artist, you know, with math trauma or with anything, you know, if you have any negative experience that impacts your future, because your future is really the thing that shapes your identity and your future is the thing that pulls you forward. And we have negative experiences all the time that crush our hope towards certain versions of the future. So it stops even being a possibility. So we stop having any hope or motivation towards it at all. Um, and so this is why reframing the past is so important is because you need to change your view of it so that your future has a possibility in that area. You know, if you've believed as an example that you're terrible at art because an art teacher told you you're not good at it, you know, and then you believed it and that became a trauma, meaning it limited your future and your identity, then you don't have a future possibility there. Therefore you have no agency or choice because you have no hope. But going back and reframing it and saying, you know what? Actually, he was wrong or I was wrong. I, I, I didn't see that the right way. And actually, he was just trying to coach me through that. And actually, I can learn. Now, all of a sudden, you can flexibly, you know, have some imagination that it is actually possible that you could go back to being an artist. And then you could start to develop that hope, which could lead to motivation and confidence. Okay, so trauma can stunt growth while imagination and hope can be the growth spurt imagination and hope are required starting points because you, you can't really learn. What's really crazy about learning is that it, it always requires imagination and connecting dots, you know, but it, it also requires the hope or the belief that you can get there, whether that's just that you can figure out the answer or that you can get help finding the answer. So um, resolving trauma allows you the ability to begin imagining a future again in whatever way you want. And also that you can develop that hope again, that things can change, that you can change, that you're not stuck in the past, but that you have that, that you can maybe make some changes so that your future is different from your past. And in The Body Keeps the Score, Vander Kolk says, as I often tell my students, the two most important phrases in therapy, as in yoga, are notice that and what happens next. When he says notice that, I think he's talking about having mental and physical self-awareness. Once you start approaching your body with curiosity rather than with fear, does everything just start to shift? I think so. Yeah, because curiosity is openness, right? And you need openness, you know, you need openness 
to actually have peak experiences or learning experiences. Whereas if you have fear, you're kind of already shut off. You're trying to avoid something from happening rather than trying to approach something, you know? So in, we psychologists usually break up behavior motivation into one of two, either, either you're avoiding something negative from happening or you're approaching something positive. And when you're curious, you're open. And that's like the, you're seeking more information or more, or more experience. And that's a crucial, that's a crucial mindset for stepping out of your comfort zone and, and actually potentially broadening your horizon and, and maybe changing a filter on a former experience. When he says what happens next, is this his way of addressing his future self? I mean, is it possible to make high quality decisions in the here and now if we don't have our future self in mind? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think that any choice in the present without respect to what happens in the future isn't a conscious choice. And that's really, so Roy Baumeister, who has spent a lot, you know, he became famous for all of his work on willpower, but he studied so many other topics. Him and Martin Seligman recently came out with a book back in 2018. Martin Seligman's the father of positive psychology, but they came out with a book called Homo Prospectus. Um, and from their perspective, rather than calling human beings Homo sapiens, in their opinion, they should, we should call human beings Homo Prospectus because from their perspective, and I agree, the thing that really makes humans humans is our ability to imagine different future scenarios. So like according to Baumeister, his view of consciousness is that consciousness is really about, the, is really about what they call perspection, which is imagining different futures. And so I think what, what Van der Kolk is saying is, is, you know, what's next, that you can't really... <laughs> You know, Viktor Frankl even said it's the, it's the peculiarity of man that we live by looking to the future. You know, mm -hmm. human beings are driven by futures. And, and so I think when it comes to trauma, which is Bessel's whole topic, the best step you can take is starting to get back to hope and imagination towards the future because that's where you start to have agency again. That's where you start to have consciousness. And if you're not doing that, if you're not actively imagining and thinking and and striving towards specific futures, then you're not actually growing in consciousness. And I think it's so important when you're saying striving towards certain futures is to be as clear as possible on what you want and where you're headed. A hundred percent. The brain actually needs that, but so does motivation. So like clarifying, spending time to think about who your future self is, is one thing. You know, it actually gives direction. It gives meaning. It gives why it gives, it gives picture and emotion. So if you think about like, who is the person I want to be and what's my situation, you know, and let's just say three years from now, like where are you, where do you want your life to be? Um, it's crucially important. The next step, if you really want to be motivated to turn that into an, a result, a, re, a specific result, an outcome. And that's really what we call goals is a result. But if you don't have a result that you can measure and define, then you can't create a process for, for actually getting there. And without a clear process, you can't have hope or motivation. Because um, in order to have true hope for something, you have to have a future that you want, but you actually have to believe there's a path to getting there. And the more clarified your path is to getting there, the more hope you'll have that you can do it. And hope fuels motivation. So yeah, you need a, you need a tangible, specific outcome. You know, rather than saying, I want to be healthy, you need to boil it down. How much do you want to weigh? <laughs> you know, what specifics do you want? Like, do you want to be, you know, you want to lift a certain amount of weight? Do you want to be able to run a certain amount? Do you want to get like, what kind of sleep do you want? Like you have to really quantify it in order to create a process that leads to um, motivation and behavior change. Cause without an outcome, you can't create a process. 
Yeah, it's like going to the gym over and over again without a plan. Yeah, I mean, that's that ultimately kills motivation over time because there's probably not a clear future self driving that behavior. It may be maintenance behavior, but it's not motivated conscious behavior. And, and if it's not motivated conscious behavior, then your brain's not working on it at the level it could. You know, if you went to the gym with a mindset towards a specific future self, then you could do deliberate practice, which is really how you learn you know you you actually develop a process that pushes you outside your comfort zone that allows you to develop characteristics whereas if you don't have a specific goal you're just doing something then you're not activating yourself to learn you're just kind of you're just repeating behavior from the past <laughs> that's right man our personalities will change over time regardless the key is to change intentionally not randomly Precisely. My, my strong opinion on the subject is that your goal should be the thing that shapes your personality, but you choose that goal. Again, that's what makes us conscious human beings is that we get to imagine futures, but we're also responsible for the future we imagine and the future we commit to. Um, and so we get to choose different directions that we can go and we become what we decide we will be in the future. Um, and so rather than having your personality determine your goal, your current personality, you want your future goal to the personality you develop. And that's really a very kind of sophisticated way of explaining the fixed versus growth mindset. People with a fixed mindset, they, they overemphasize who they are today. They say who I am today determines what I'm going to be in the future. Whereas people with a growth mindset don't really care that much about who they are today. They're more focused on who they can be tomorrow. James Clear writes about the power of identity-based habits. To change your behavior for good, you need to start believing new things about yourself. You need to build identity-based habits. Is that the key to take action and let the action convince us that we are now our new and improved selves? I think that's a huge part of it. I think James is on to it. I think that it's, it's, it's what he would call a feedback loop. Your identity shapes your behavior, but your behavior reinforces your identity. And so, you know, all behavior is pretty addictive. You know, if you start looking at YouTube videos, you're going to want more of it. If you start eating healthy food, you're going to want more of it because all behavior kind of impacts how you see yourself. And so, yeah, I think that choosing, choosing habits from an identity perspective becomes a lot easier because it's kind of the opposite of willpower. Willpower is trying to grit yourself to perform a behavior that's against your identity. So behavior is goal-driven or action-driven, not the other way around. Yeah, behavior is goal-driven. All behavior is goal-driven. And this forces us to be honest about our goals. You know, like when you perform a behavior, there was a reason behind it. You know, like if you tell yourself you want to be healthy, but you keep grabbing the chocolate chips or you, you, know, you keep grabbing the cookies, like you may say, well, I'm acting against my goal, but you're actually not. Because if you were really serious about that goal, you wouldn't you wouldn't grab the cookies. Like you're grabbing the cookies because you actually had a different goal, which was to satisfy, <laughs> satisfy the emotional need or whatever you get from that. Like it was your goal to eat the cookie. And I think that once you actually own that, that your behavior was driven by the outcome you wanted, which was to distract yourself or to feel good, then you can say, well, you know, everything I'm doing right now is driven by outcomes that I want. Even if those outcomes are just things that I've now become addicted to such as dopamine or whatever it is, then you can start to kind of own that your behavior is based on creating a future. And, and maybe you should question that future because maybe that future is just to satisfy your hunger, to distract yourself or to catch up on this or that. Maybe those futures aren't worth committing to. And maybe you have to 
you know, change the future you want and the identity you have from a James Clear perspective so that you can build habits that resonate with the identity of your future self. I love that, that whole idea. But I did want to switch gears here. The deathbed mentality is the only way to live. So stop pretending you'll live forever. And this aligns with memento mori or memento vivere. Remember, you will die. So remember to live. Is meditating on your own mortality part of your daily practice? Yeah, but a different way than maybe the Stoics. Um, I'm not sure if this, I mean, I know probably a lot of the, like the legit Stoics from way back when had beliefs in God. Um, I think maybe a more Stoic practice today is to be more probably uh, at least agnostic towards that conversation. For me, I'm definitely a believer in God. And so like my, my view of my view of my own future beyond this life directly, just like it just like your view of your future, even in this life impacts what you do here. And now, mm -hmm. the more I learn about like, whether it be near death experiences or just strengthen my faith in my own belief system, it definitely changes the urgency that I have towards this life because I have greater sense of purpose that what I do here matters. Um, and so, yeah, my, my view of death and of life after death and whatnot hugely impacts how I approach the present. Yeah, that's a common way to clarify what you want in life is by imagining yourself on your deathbed. Oh, hugely. Yeah, I mean, that's what Stephen Covey talked about in Seven Habits. You know, he says, imagine your 80th birthday. But it's like, again, this just forces consciousness. It's like, if you were on your deathbed, what would need to be true in order for you to feel good about your life? You know, like, that's a great question. What would need to be true? What would you have needed to do? What unfinished business have you not gotten to yet? Or just what would you love to, what would you love to have created for yourself? Like, you know, I don't really spend that much time thinking about legacy, but like, the, I just think the idea is just like, what would, what would you want to look back on? You know, this is actually a way to time hack because you can go to the future, which from a psychology perspective, the past, present, and the future all exist simultaneously. Okay. Um, that's why you can go back and reframe and change the meaning of the past. It's why you can time travel to your future self and sit on your deathbed and start having conversations with your future self and then rethink your life and get some direction from your future self. And so I, I think that um, sitting there and thinking, you know, if you're on your deathbed, let's just say at 80, or maybe you're on your deathbed at 40 or 30 or, you know, depending on how old you are, what would need to be true for you to feel all right about this and for you to feel good about what's been done. And I think that that then can force you to say, all right, I need to start working towards that stuff. We all think about how to live a graceful life, but we also need to think about how we can die gracefully. I think that's way cool. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you die in a crazy, you know, crazy accident or not, it's just like, did you live a graceful life so that you set? And I actually think that kind of the memento mori perspective actually allows you to set other people up. It allows you to actively prepare for death, not just passively prepare, but actively prepare for death. You know, like I have five kids. And so it's like, you know, because I know I could die at any moment, I better freaking use my time to set them up for potential success, you know, get life insurance or like yeah. put my finances in order or, you know, so that if I died, it was a graceful death because I didn't, I, I actually did it knowingly and I actively prepared for it. I used my present to set up a better future, not only for myself, but for others. Over dinner, Alice Cooper told you that he believes after 50 years of making music that his best song is still in him. He said that if he believed he had already written his best song, he wouldn't, he wouldn't continue writing music. Do you have a similar feeling of lifelong improvement until your masterpiece is revealed? Yeah, I think so. 
And I think that the masterpiece really is just that you're still creating. Um, that was a fun conversation because it just, it just proved that you need a future in order to have any sense of creativity. You need a future in order to have any sense of purpose. Um, and if the past was all there was, then the present would, the present would be shallow. There'd be no reason to even be here. Hmm. And so, you know, I love, I love that Alice Cooper, someone who's been making music for 50 years still believes that. Cause if he didn't have that hope, he wouldn't have any motivation. And so I, I definitely have that hope. My, uh, my, one of my favorite quotes from Dan Sullivan is always make your future bigger than your past. But a similar quote from Condoleezza Rice is never be the former anything, you know? So, so for Alice, obviously he can leverage all of his former success, but his future music is going to be made by a different person than the person who made that music in the eighties. You know what I mean? He's not the same guy. Yeah. And his music now is going to be totally different because he's not the same guy. He shouldn't hold on so much to the Alice of the eighties because maybe his future self is going to create totally different stuff. Well put. And sidebar, I really admire the way that you can just recall quotes like that. <laughs> Thanks dude. All right, Ben, if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? Um, I've read two great books recently. Um, I read a book called the triumphs of experience by gosh, what's his name? He's a, he was a Harvard psychologist. He, he did the grant study. Um, Valorand, I think is his name, George Valorand. So it's called the triumphs of experience. I actually recommended it to Ryan holiday. I don't give very many reading suggestions to Ryan. He's the one giving us all the reading suggestions, but I, I emailed him and I said, here's a rare, here's a rare reading suggestion from Ben Hardy. And he's like, I will read it. <laughs> but it, the reason I like the book is that it follows these 300 men, you know, for, for 80 years. And there was just so much cool research and obviously it's not a perfect study, you know, and it's not a perfect sample. You know, there were 30 white men for the most part who graduated from Harvard, which is a unique sample, but Valorant does a really good job of integrating um, other longitudinal research and longitudinal research is just where a single population is studied over time. You know, so you'll, you know, you would measure someone 50 times over like 50 years rather than just measuring them once and taking a single snapshot and drawing lots of conclusions. Most psychology research, you just measure something once and then you assume that what you found is always true, which is actually a pretty, pretty bad way of looking at things because things tend to change. So this, this, this is just a really fascinating book, just showing like the, you know, the unexpected changes that happen in some of these people's lives, you know, but also he really explains some good principles as far as like correlations like you know for the people who are doing these types of things in their 20s they were far more likely to be happy in their 80s you know and like there's there's just you just can learn a lot by following a single group of people for 80 years and so that's a really cool book um my uh my audible password unfortunately changed recently because we're doing all this um internal security stuff and so i can't just pull open my audible at the moment to look at what else I'm reading, but I'll, I'll just leave with triumphs of experience. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I will be sure to check that out. It sounds that you'll, you'll dig that book. You'll, I think you'll, you'll find some nuggets in there that you weren't surprising, you know, that you weren't expecting. And then last question, if you could have a drink or a coffee with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Probably like, you know, the cliche, but probably Christ just cause I mean, talk about a crazy figure. Um, you know, more recent stuff, George Washington would be cool. It would be cool to meet 
you know, people, you know, Harriet Tubman, people who have done crazy things, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but I mean, unless he's a myth, Jesus did live on this planet, you know? And so I think it'd be crazy to sit and talk with him. Oh yeah. So if people want to find you, they can go to BenjaminHardy.com. You're on Medium and Twitter at Benjamin P. Hardy and Instagram at Benjamin Hardy PhD. I'll have links to Personality Isn't Permanent in the show notes. Where else do you want people to go to find you? That's it, man. Read Personality Isn't Permanent and uh, just BenjaminHardy.com. Opt in for the free future self checklist and get on the newsletter. But that's, that's mostly it, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. Dude, you're amazing. That was such a freaking well-crafted interview. Thank you, dude. Thanks for the kind words, man. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.